Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. This is the fourth and final part on the revolutions of the year 1848. In the first months of 1848, a tidal wave of revolution shook the political establishment of Europe to its foundations. A series of rulers abdicated and fled, while others were forced against their will to give up large parts of their power to the turbulent masses. The situation was out of control, with the revolutionaries falling out among themselves. Moderate liberals favoured gradual reform, such as greater strength given to constitutional assemblies so as to ensure stability and to avoid loss of their own privileges. The radical democrats, however, impatiently demanded immediate and dramatic change, and the two sides were often incompatible. At the same time, the various nationalists argued among themselves. Where could one draw borders on a continent where populations were so intermingled. Nowhere was this question more complex than in Germany, where there was much debate about to what extent the common assembly in Frankfurt should be strengthened. Should there be a unified nation, or more of a confederation, or where should its borders lie? And the other big question was how far Austria could be included. The revolutionaries in Vienna fully expected to be part of a united Germany. Yet from the Habsburgs' point of view, if Austria joined, then how would the rest of the monarchy's people fit in? And also how to resolve the rivalry between Vienna and Berlin for influence in any pan-German organisation. Some of these issues were involved in events on the German-Danish border. Here, the Duchy of Schleswig with a Danish-speaking majority, had been joined to the German Duchy of Holstein within the German Confederation. By chance, the absolutist King Christian VIII died in January 1848. His successor, Frederick VII, was in no position to reject moderate liberal demands for a constitution. Giving in to demands of Danish nationalists, he declared the union of Schleswig with Denmark. 
This provoked outrage among German nationalists. So in response, the Diet of the German Confederation asked the Prussian army to invade Denmark. Britain and Russia were keen to avoid war, and they put pressure on the Prussians to sign an armistice and to withdraw her troops. War was averted, and a joint Danish-Prussian administration was established in Schleswig. This compromise caused a storm of indignation among nationalists in Frankfurt. Radical Democrats declared to a crowd of 12,000 supporters, next to where the Parliament was meeting, that war against Denmark must continue. The situation got out of hand, but the Parliament had insufficient strength of arms to overcome the revolutionaries, and found themselves relying on troops from the states of Prussia and Hesse for its survival. Meanwhile, in France, Paris suffered for months of turmoil. Following the departure of King Louis-Philippe, the poet Alphonse de Lamartine was appointed president of a new republic by the triumphant liberals. He led a coalition government that declared universal male suffrage, and national workshops were set up which employed huge numbers of destitute workers in activities such as road-building and planting trees, paid for by the state. In the elections of the 23rd of April, the largely rural electorate, alarmed by the turmoil in Paris and angry at new land taxes to pay for the national workshops, returned a constituent assembly dominated by moderates and conservatives. The results were a disappointment to the radicals in Paris, who were concerned about a slowing down of the revolutionary movement. They pressured the government to promote democracy more strongly across Europe and to support the movement to independence of other states, such as Poland, where there was also an uprising. The government of the National Constituent Assembly resisted the radicals, and on the 15th of May, hundreds of demonstrators, many of them employees of the national workshops, feeling their democratic and social republic was slipping away, invaded the assembly to protest. An attempted revolution was quickly suppressed by the National Guard and its leaders arrested. Then, on the 20th of June, the government abolished the controversial national workshops, but in so doing triggered further protests by workers. Now deprived of an income, they gathered to march through the streets and again built barricades around the city amid cries of liberty or death and choruses of the song The Marseillaise. Both the conservative and liberal classes of society were becoming increasingly fearful of the power of the working classes in Paris. The government appointed General Louis-Eugène Cavagnac to lead the military forces, suppressing the uprisings. On the 23rd of June and 26th of June 1848, this battle between the working class and Cavagnac came to be known as the June Days Uprising. Cavagnac's forces, composed of about 20,000 to 30,000 soldiers, began a systematic assault against the revolutionary Parisian citizenry, targeting the blockaded areas of the city. Only with substantial reinforcements was Cavagnac finally able to put down the uprising with military force. The government then moved quickly 
and two days later appointed Cavagnac as the head of the French state. Alexis de Tocqueville believed that the June insurrection was distinct from all other uprisings because his aim was not to change the form of government but to alter the social order. It was, he wrote, not a political struggle but a class conflict. Afterwards he wrote, quote, I had suspected that the whole of the working class was engaged in the fight, either physically or morally. In fact, the spirit of insurrection circulated from one end to the other of that vast class, and in all of its parts, like blood, in a single body. It had penetrated into our houses, around, above, below us. Even the places where we thought we were masters were crawling with domestic enemies. It was as if an atmosphere of civil war enveloped the whole of Paris. End quote. Karl Marx agreed that the June days amounted to a class struggle. He wrote that, quote, as the tremendous insurrection in which the first great battle was joined between the two classes that split modern society, it was a fight for the preservation or annihilation of the bourgeois order. End quote. He and Friedrich Engels published the Communist Manifesto that February, the same month as Paris erupted. In it, he argued that capitalism was expanding relentlessly, creating an ever-growing and more exploited working class that would eventually come together under socialist leadership. He encouraged communists to work together in the common interests of the entire proletariat, independent of nationality, a new geopolitics which pitted the interests of the exploited against their oppressors, which would in turn render state and national conflict redundant. The revolutionary upheavals spread further to Moldavia and Wallachia, the two predominantly Romanian-speaking principalities to the east of Transylvania and under joint Ottoman and Russian control. In April, in the city of Yashi, in Moldavia, liberal demonstrators issued a list of 35 demands for reform. The reigning prince brought in the army, arrested 300 protesters, had them severely beaten and deported across the Turkish border. In Wallachia in June, a large demonstration toppled the local prince, and a proclamation was announced containing a series of liberal principles, including the end of capital punishment and the formation of a provisional government. However, the Ottoman government, acting under Russian pressure, sent in a military force to put down the revolt. To make sure... The Russians moved in as well. 91 revolutionaries were arrested and sent into exile, and many more fled across the border. Meanwhile, the Serbs living in southern Hungary proclaimed independence of their province of Vojvodina. Magyar troops crushed the rebellion, massacring some 300 Serbs in the town of Bece. Then they marched slowly through the province, setting Serb villages ablaze as they went and hanging many of their inhabitants, while the Serbs responded with ambushes and surprise attacks. At the same time, Croats called for their own national assembly in Zagreb. A talented Croatian officer, Count Josip Jelacic, an individual with strong monarchist and conservative views, 
was given active military support by the Viennese government to counter the Hungarians. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. What happened in the Habsburg monarchy had serious repercussions for German unity. Austrian authorities, in the end, were not prepared to see the German-speaking part of their empire become part of a unified Germany ruled from Frankfurt. In addition, problems were caused by the aim of German nationalists to incorporate Bohemia into a united Germany. In the capital of Bohemia, Prague, Czech and German nationalists began to form separate militias, and they confronted each other. In response, the Viennese government sent in an army to restore order, led by Field Marshal Alfred, Prince of Windischglatz, a veteran of the Napoleonic Wars and an arch-conservative. Windischglatz positioned his 10,000 troops in strategic places around Prague, sparking a protest march on the 12th of June 1848, led by the Czech militia. When they encountered members of the German militias, fighting broke out, and barricades went up all over the city. As the German and Czech militias fired at each other, a stray bullet killed the wife of the field marshal. He promptly withdrew his troops and bombarded the city from the surrounding hills until the insurgents surrendered on the 17th of June. The Austrians... Military victory at Prague marked the beginning of a counter-revolution that would soon turn back the revolutionary tide which had once looked unstoppable. Hardliners at court sought to exploit not only national divisions among the revolutionaries but also the gulf that had opened up between moderate liberals and radical Republican Democrats. As mob violence escalated in Vienna, the terrified middle-class liberals turned to the monarchy and the army for protection. The government clamped down on dissent by arresting student journalists and suppressing Republican newspapers, but were unable to prevent losing control of the capital. In the first days of October, chaos engulfed the city of Vienna, 
and Ferdinand once more fled. In a new proclamation, the Emperor evoked the memory of the worst excesses of the French Revolution, condemning what he described as a reign of terror in Vienna, and gave Field Marshal Windischgratz full powers to restore order. An imperial army of 70,000 surrounded the city and cut off its food supplies. On the 28th of October, it began a sustained bombardment and started clearing the barricades. With the help of reinforcements from an additional army under the Croatian commander, Jelacic, the city was violently retaken. The recovery of nerve by the Habsburg monarchy demonstrated not only the Austrian government's determination to keep its domains intact, but also their utter ruthlessness in the suppression of a revolutionary tide. The hapless Emperor Ferdinand was persuaded to abdicate his throne in favour of his 18-year-old nephew, Franz Josef, who would go on to remain as emperor into the 20th century. Field Marshal Vendischgratz next turned his attention to restoring order in Hungary, and with an army of 52,000 entered Budapest on the 15th of January 1849. The Hungarians, under leadership of Lajos Kossuth, fought back fiercely, and on the 23rd of April retook their capital. Franz Josef and his government took the radical step of going east to meet with Tsar Nicholas I of Russia to ask for support in the struggle for order against anarchy. The Tsar was flattered by the young Franz Josef's gesture of falling to his knees and kissing his hand in supplication. An additional motivation for Tsar Nicholas of Russia for getting involved was the consequence of Hungarian independence on his Polish subjects, a number of whom were serving in the Hungarian army, some in senior positions. The Hungarian forces were overwhelmed by a combination of an imperial army 83,000 strong, a separate army under Jelacic of 43,000, and an enormous force of 200,000 Russians. As Hungarian appeals for international protection fell on deaf ears, the Austrians recovered the city of Budapest on the 13th of July, 1849. The resurgence of Habsburg authority and the reconquest of Vienna and Prague had significant consequences for the prospects of German unification. On the 20th of December, the Frankfurt Parliament, after many months of discussion, finally issued a series of substantial liberal reforms. However, they were in no position to be able to enforce them. Austria and Bohemia had already both definitively rejected any inclusion in a united German state, which left no choice for the German nationalists but to accept a smaller state, with the King of Prussia as sovereign. However, Frederick Wilhelm had no interest in an imperial title which was elected rather than given by divine right. His decision to reject the constitution of a united Germany emboldened other monarchs to do likewise. Throughout Germany, the authorities began to re-establish control over the revolutionaries, as the tide of revolution decisively turned. By the spring of 1849, there were still a few pockets of opposition to Austria and Italy. In Piedmont, King Carlo Alberto was pressured into repudiating the truce he had earlier declared with the Austrians, and he mobilised his forces 
for a second time against Austria. The two sides met at the Battle of Navarra, northeast of Milan, on the 22nd of March, 1849. The fighting lasted all day, and the Piedmontese army of 85,000, poorly trained and badly equipped men, were routed by 72,000 soldiers under Field Marshal Radetzky. Embittered, Carlo Alberto abdicated in favour of his son, Vittorio Emmanuel II, and left for exile in Portugal. Soon afterwards, on the 11th of May, the army of King Ferdinand of Naples seized the city of Palermo, and so completed the recapture of Sicily. The parliament at Palermo was dissolved, and Ferdinand forcefully re-established his autocratic control over the island. The Republic of Venice held out for a little longer. The Austrians were unable to achieve a full naval blockade, as they had few seaworthy ships, and moreover, the tides and sandbanks in the lagoon required local knowledge, which naturally helped the Venetians. A republican government was ably led by Daniel Manin, but it received no help from elsewhere in Italy. The Austrian government became increasingly confident and prepared to drive for outright victory in Italy. The Venetians, decimated by cholera and bombarded, by the besieging Austrian forces, finally submitted on the 22nd of August, 1849. The Republic's leaders were offered reasonably generous terms and were allowed to embark on a steamboat into exile. As for Rome, Pope Pius IX had fled to Naples in 1848 after angry crowds had stabbed to death his appointed First Minister, Pellegrino Rossi, and assembled threateningly outside the papal residence, demanding a republic. Revolutionaries took control and declared a Roman Republic, in which Giuseppe Mazzini was given the leading role. Mazzini proved to be a good administrator and carried out a number of reforms, including the scrapping of censorship, abolishing the death penalty, setting up a progressive tax system and introducing religious toleration. The Pope appealed to the governments of Europe to help him recover the Papal States, Perhaps surprisingly, it was the French who answered the call. The country's leader was now Louis-Napoleon Bonaparte, cousin of the former Emperor Napoleon, who had skillfully exploited his uncle's legend for his own benefit and won a landslide election in December 1848 against General Cavagnac and other candidates. The new Prince-President, as he styled himself, was keen to win over Conservatives and monarchists in France, and to be seen to be actively restoring France's former influence in Europe. So he therefore approved the sending of 6,000 troops who landed in Naples and marched on Rome. Mazzini had been joined in Rome by the revolutionary Giuseppe Garibaldi, who had come back from exile in South America the previous August. Under Garibaldi's command, the Roman troops made a surprise attack on the French on the 30th of April, and drove them back with heavy losses. Garibaldi achieved further victories against a Neapolitan army approaching from the south. The larger French military forces, however, ultimately overwhelmed those of the Republic, and Garibaldi escaped to make his way back to the Americas. Pope Pius IX returned to power 
and became more reactionary, for example, re-establishing the Inquisition and forcing the Jews back into the old ghetto. In conclusion, the 1848 revolutions had been caused by deep economic problems which drove the impoverished masses to desperation and had created a crisis of confidence in government in one state after another. Rulers had been extremely cautious about changing the status quo established at the Congress of Vienna and so had failed to respond to the subject's economic distress and to demands for greater political participation. In the first half of the year 1848, an extraordinary powerful wave of revolution had forced numerous rulers out of office and compelled others to make substantial political concessions against their will. But after the initial period of shock had worn off, conservatives in Prussia, Austria, France and across Europe rallied and returned the political situation to much the same as before the revolutions took place. The main reason for the failure of the 1848 revolutions, writes the author, Brendan Sims, was the disunity among the revolutionaries, between town and country, between liberals and radicals, and Protestants and Catholics. He writes that in most cases the peasantry were bought off with concessions at an early stage and became a largely conservative force. This helped the established authorities overcome the middle-class revolutionaries. In the end, contrary to what liberals, socialists and communists alike had believed, counter-revolution proved to be international in nature, while revolutionaries had failed to coordinate across national or even regional borders. Nevertheless, even when the conservatives were back in control, they were unable to reverse all of the changes. Most governments, for example, kept some form of constitution, and liberals worked hard to defend what was left of their achievements. The events of 1848 gave millions of Europeans their first taste of politics and remained an inspiration for later generations. My name is Carl Rylett and you've been listening to History of Europe Key Battles podcast. If you enjoyed the show, why not give it a good review on iTunes or wherever you have listened to the podcast. If you'd like to help support the show, please visit patreon.com slash history Europe. Today's music is Kinderzenen or Scenes from Childhood by the composer Robert Schumann. In the next episode, I will move on to the Crimean War of 1853 to 1856, and I hope you can join me then. Until then, all the best, and goodbye. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.